the views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. It's the Space Show with Dr. David Livingston. Broadcasting for seven continents, consistently bringing you quality news and interviews with the best and brightest minds in the new space economy. Here is the founder and host of the Space Show, the man who best articulates the vision of space commercial enterprise, Dr. David Livingston. Good afternoon, listeners. Welcome to our first Sunday Space Show program, first March Space Show program. I'm your host, David Livingston. Thank you very much for tuning in. Apologize for starting a few minutes late. We were making a last-minute equipment adjustment. Uh, we have a great program for you today with one of our all-time favorite guests, Dr. B, as we like to refer to him, Dr. John Brandenburg. Uh, but first, a couple of quick announcements. Today is a full-length space show program, uh, but if you do want to call and talk to Dr. B or send an email, make sure you do it while we're still on air. That always helps, right? Um, also, we should have a full week of programming coming up and uh, open lines the following Sunday. So um, the toll-free number for today, if you do want to talk to Dr. Brandenburg, is one. 866-687-7223. No call screeners. Let the phone ring, and we will bring you up on air just as quickly as we most possibly can. You can also send email to us at drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. You can also post on our blog, which is the website, thespaceshow.com, all the way to the far right upcoming show menu. Uh, click on that. The first page is Dr. Brandenburg's page. Scroll down to the bottom and post your comment and then hit send, and we will integrate it into our discussion as soon as possible. Uh, our newsletter for the coming week is already posted, and if you go again to our homepage, thespaceshow.com, the website newsletter is upper right side. Make sure you scroll down. It will show you all the programs planned between now and the first part of July. We're pretty busy now filling out second quarter 2020. Time really does fly. Um, the email newsletter goes out tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. If you want to be on that email newsletter, please send me your email address. I'll be happy to add you. It's a very short um, newsletter. It won't clutter up your inbox, I, I guarantee it. Remember, everything we do is archived. You can listen right off of our website. Quickly download the program. We have a store, um, and um, you go there by clicking on any of the pictures of Pepper listening to the Space Show, and she will take you to our Space Show logo wear program. Uh, also, in the upper left, you'll see Listen Live in the upper left menu. Uh, it tells you how to listen to archives right off of our website, podcast, regardless of your um, device that you're using for the podcast. Um, and um, you can also quickly download programs and, uh, you know, get them that way. So, there's a lot of ways to uh, hear our programs. If you have suggestions uh, for some other way, we'd be happy to entertain your suggestion. And as I said, we're sort of hung up trying to get on Stitcher, but uh, 
just send me your suggestions and we'll do our very, very best to follow through. And then uh, one other really important thing is to remind everybody we're listener-funded radio and we're a 501c3 nonprofit with one giant leapfoundation.org. We would not be bringing you these great programs and discussions without your financial support. So we do need your financial support. And um, as a nonprofit 501c3 with one giant leapfoundation.org, if you're paying U.S. federal taxes, you, you still get a tax deduction. Uh, the same is true if you're paying California taxes. And um, go to onegiantleapfoundation.org. That is the website for our parent. And if you have any questions, you know, email me, drspaceatthespaceshow.com, and let me know. Uh, and if you want to be on our Space Show advisory team, uh, you can do so through our homepage uh, up at the top, and you can also do so uh, through uh, looking at teams on onegiantleapfoundation.org, or just email me, drspace, at thespaceshow.com. Uh, in addition to uh, individual um, contributions, mostly through PayPal. Don't forget we have a big PayPal button at the top of every one of our shows for those of you who want to do a donation electronically. But we also take your checks made payable to one giant leapfoundation.org and you mail that to Box 95, Tiburon, California, 94920. But we also do sponsorships. And uh, we do have a couple of sponsors left for uh, 2020 if you want to get in on the act. So sponsors get a banner ad across our homepage, which you see. You can change that banner whenever you like. And uh, in addition, on the longer formatted programs like today, we read a sponsor message from each sponsor. On the shorter formatted programs, I just do a shout-out for those sponsors. We would not be doing the program without the sponsors. So... Um, Northrop Grumman sponsors us, uh, the Space Foundation sponsors us, Astrox sponsors us, AIAA sponsors us, Moonward, Celestis, National Space Society, and the Space Plan. And uh, again, without these great organizations, you would not be hearing a space show program. So what I've been doing lately uh, to save on speaker time is to um, use the sponsor messages during the break between first and second segment, since this is a full-length program. So that is what I'm going to do today. Now I have one other very special announcement, and uh, it, this is for all of this week, and that means it runs through Friday, because uh, actually it runs through Sunday. And um, as many of you know, uh, Freeman Dyson passed away on Friday, uh, a great, great name in science and space and humanity. The Space Show was very, very fortunate to have Freeman Dyson as a guest only one time. His, his daughter Esther has been with us multiple times. But Freeman did one Space Show program with us, April 30th, 2006. It's show number 488. So for tomorrow, since we don't typically do a live Space Show on Monday, it's Freeman Dyson Day, and you'll see a page on the website that I created in memoriam for Freedom Freeman Dyson. And I've given you the web address of his archive program from 2006. I think you have to copy and paste the URL into your browser. Uh, for some reason, um, on my browsers, when I try to click on it, it's taking me elsewhere. 
but uh, or in at thespaceshow.com in the search box, you can type in Freeman Dyson or just 488. That's the number of his show. And it will take you to the archive program with the original very short write-up summary of his program plus his almost 90-minute interview. Uh, as I said, we were fortunate to have Freeman with us just once. I wish we had had him more. Uh, but um, thank God for small favors, as they say. And so all of this week we're um, paying our respects uh, and honoring the memory of Freeman Dyson. And I urge you to sometime find the time to listen to his 2006 one and only space show program. And um, I have sent Esther a condolence note uh, in the name of everyone on the space show. And um, may he rest in peace. And, uh, you know, we're sorry to see Freeman go. Um, and with that, um, John Brandenburg, Dr. John Brandenburg, is our guest today. So he's a plasma physicist. And um, John uh, is getting lots of credible, peer-reviewed, excellent traction for his gem theory, which we have talked about for several years on the space show. And uh, we're going to talk about gem today. So uh, he's uniting gravity and electromagnetics, but I'll let him talk to you about it. Uh, he is also doing work with um, Dr. Jim Woodward on mock thrusters, or as we affectionately refer to it as the Woodward Thruster Program. So he can update us to some degree on Dr. Woodward's work. And then, of course, John has this idea that uh, some really nasty, stinking, belligerent group of something or another 100 million years ago got pissed off at Mars, nuked it into oblivion, and uh, the desolate, no-life, barren Mars today is a result of these two gigantic nuclear explosions that took place on Mars about 100 million years ago. Uh, John can give us a little bit of new information on that. We also have a listener question or two about that uh, from a listener who could not listen live but sent in an advanced question. And then John writes great science fiction, and uh, he writes under the name of Victor Norgard. And um, his science fiction books are a lot of fun, and we've talked about every one of them on the space show, and we will continue to preview uh, John's Victor Norgard science fiction book, uh, when he has a new book out. Uh, John, welcome back to the program, and how are you? Happy New Year, since it's oh, the first uh, time we've hey, talked to you. It, it's really great to be back on your show. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be here. Um, uh, with do- talking to Dr. Space. Let's see. Um, I will also comment that, you know, that I actually had uh, several nice conversations with Freeman Dyson, uh, while he was alive, he was a scholar and a gentleman through and through, and um, he was just just a wonderful, wonderful person. I even talked to him about the gem theory that uh, we're going to be discussing today, uh, among other things. Um, does he? Um, um, what did he say about the gem well, theory? <laughs> I felt a little bit like I was trying to sell a vacuum cleaner door to door. It was one of these elevator conversations. Um, you know, when I discussed it with him, the theory was in a quite early state, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't quite ready for prime time. And he pointed out difficulties in it, and you know that he 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 basically argued things from like quantum electrodynamics, which is. Uh, <clears throat> 
you know, uh, unification of quantum mechanics, relativity, and Maxwell's equations. And um, we ended up talking about, like, the mass of the electron, you know, how do you calculate something like that, and turns out that's a very mysterious uh, problem. Uh, Quantum electrodynamics or quantum mechanics, uh, you know, in general has a serious problem when it tries to um, work with general relativity. Uh That is that quantum mechanics predicts you have this zero-point fluctuation spectrum, a a vacuum ground state that should be full of energy, and that means every cubic cc of uh, vacuum in the universe should weigh as much as the Milky Way galaxy. So it's, it's it's obviously a ridiculous number. It's it's sort of the ultraviolet catastrophe of modern uh, physics. And um, and as I've told you before, modern physics is like uh, somebody living in an apartment um, where there's big holes in the wall, and they what they do is they hang paintings over the holes and. Um, you don't really notice them till the wind blows, and suddenly you've got this big draft coming through your apartment. Most of the time, everything looks normal, but you're not supposed to look behind the paintings on the wall uh, because they cover up uh, big holes. And as long as human science has been around, there's always been kind of big paradoxes and questions um, that couldn't be answered. Uh, until the uh, late, very late 1800s, people didn't even have any notion of what made the sun shine. They thought the only kind of energy source they knew of at the time was combustion. I said, well, if it's coal, where does it get its oxygen to burn? You know, there's no oxygen in space. It, it, you know, they had discussions like that. It wasn't until radioactivity was um, discovered um and explored by Madame Curie that uh, people had an idea that there were energy sources that had no connection with combustion and, um, you know, that you could see on Earth. So all of physics um, always has um, kind of unanswerable questions. Right now the, the question we are dealing with is, you know, why... Why does the vacuum weigh nothing when quantum mechanics says it should be denser than, you know, a neutron star, uh, denser than neutronium, which is the science fiction name for stuff for uh, from neutron star. So, um, and, you know, I, I actually had the pleasure of discussing these things briefly with uh, uh, Freeman Dyson. And... Um, we ended up talking really about what, where do particles get their mass. And, um, you know, I said there must be something uh, better than, you know, this quantum renormalization. Uh, and um, he said, yes, there, there must be something, but we don't know what it is, and your, your ideas are obviously not, your ideas are obviously wrong. <laughs> John, I need you to pause for a minute. Um, sure. I'm getting reports that uh, for some reason people are not getting streaming on the program. And everything shows fine for me. 
so listeners, if you're getting streaming uh, on fast serve in Windows, well, I just killed it. Um, let's see if, if rebooting it uh, can uh, give me something better. Yeah, I mean, and I can I can I can call in again if you. No, like. that doesn't have anything to do with it. Oh, okay. Um, okay, this one needs to. It's, it's obviously related to the coronavirus. Maybe. Uh, okay, so all of my so uh, listeners, um, I've rebooted the system, and uh, I hopeful I am hopeful that you are able to uh, give me uh, to, to be able to get um, um, get the program. So I need to hear some feedback from you. Uh, so okay, so John Jossie uh, is. Um, Reporting in that it's working fine now, so maybe the reboot reboot had something to to do with that. Well, you can take off your big iron uh, iron toed boot now, I guess. Uh, I guess so, uh, listeners. What you have missed. Uh, so here's another person saying, uh, uh, the, "See, I don't know how to get to everybody because they're all not rebooting, um, and that's what they need to do." So. Uh, yeah, tell everybody to reboot. But they're not listening, so you can't communicate with them. So you know that's uh, that's the problem. Um, uh, I don't know what to say. I guess I'll have to deal with it when people come in. But well, listeners, if you've missed part of the show, John was uh, talking about um, his contact and experiences with Freeman Dyson. Right, which were very pleasant. And even uh, though uh, you know he he. he uh, my theory was in a primitive state, and he managed to shoot a bunch of holes in it, So, <laughs> which forced me to um, rethink the theory and re- reformulate it, so to answer his objections. So that was good. Well, um, and you, so, but you actually met him personally, too, right? Oh, and yes, several times. Several times. I mean, these were just, they were just brief encounters and meetings, I... I uh, I didn't want to pester him, and um, he treated me as a petitioner, <laughs> somebody trying to sell vacuum cleaners or something like this. And, uh-huh. uh, and of course, I was. I was trying to sell him my theory, and and uh, so you know, I I told him, "Gee, I can uh, uh, I can get the Newton gravitation constant within you know this high precision, and no one else can." And from my theory and. And he wasn't interested in that, though. <laughs> he was um, more interested in qu- in, in quantum. Uh, you know, if I showed him how to get one thirty-seven, you know, the fine structure constant, he probably would have uh-huh. been more interested. Um, so I guess what I'll have to do is, as people contact me that they can't get the show, that uh, I'll, I'll have to email them back. And, and I don't this know. This is all being recorded, so it'll be accessible. Yeah, but so. we want their feedback during the show. I want them to call you and. Uh, what do you want them to call me? I, I want them, they can call you anything they want. A scholar and a gentleman. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, as I get notices from people, I'll interrupt you and, and tell people what to do because they probably need to reboot their okay. system for some strange reason. Let's start out with your... Um, well, okay, the, let, gem, the gem theory... You want to start with gem? Yes, it is moving along. Uh, I'm going to be giving a paper... I gave a paper this summer at the um, 
American Physical Society meeting of division of particles and fields, you know, the big quantum, um, quantum field meeting. And, um, you know, I was, I was worried that I was just going to be ignored, you know, put off in the corner some places, uh, uh, a nutcase, you know, with the pyramid power people or something like that. But instead, I, to my delight, I was met by an angry mob with torches and pitchforks. <laughs> and um, I had a great brawl, you know, where I defended the theory. I had a, they gave me a poster session which is where you put up your results kind of on a big bulletin board and then stand in front of it and explain it to everybody. And I had about you know 30 people clustered around my poster. Okay, got to stop you for a minute. Uh, I do have a comment that one person says he's, he's now able to listen to the show, uh, but he's pretty sure that the problem has been an excess of Martian isotopes in the Earth atmosphere. <laughs> so I, I thought I would let you know that up front. Well, good, excellent. So we'll, we'll speak. We'll speak to that. We'll speak to that later in the in the talk. Yeah, they're they're hitchhiking in on Martian uh, meteorites, I guess. Right? Ah, very good. All right. So, um, so, so tell anyway, us so what I had a great time at the Boston meeting. Uh huh. And uh, one, you know, one fellow. It reminded me of uh, being in a, a fist fight in my uh, parking lot of uh, my high school in, back in Medford, Oregon, you know, where there's 30 people all gathered around watching. And, and I had a, you know, I had a verbal uh, kind of fist fight with this one scientist who accused me of, he said, the only reason your, your um, equation for big G, you know, the gravitation constant, is so accurate is you use some mathematical trick. And I showed him, you know, just algebraically that there was no trick. And um, suddenly his face fell and he left. And, I mean, nobody applauded or anything, but then I was left with all these smiling faces that I, you know, I basically defended my theory. And um, so I am the only person on Earth who has a model-derived Highly accurate formula for the Newton gravitation constant. So within, uh, you know, it's, I've actually, uh, it, I've improved the formula, but, uh, you know, the basic formula is good to a part per thousand, so it's within a tenth of a percent of the measured value, and no one has that. So tell- it doesn't have any diddle factors in it or anything like that. It's just derived from my model of. Tell people what what GEM stands for. Let's start okay, at the beginning. The GEM theory, it, it was, um, you know, is a marketing ploy. Um, I wanted something that sounded pleasant and people would remember easily, and it just stands for gravity, electromagnetism. Uh, or uh, you can actually, part of the, you can actually interpret it as grandis et medianus, which is a Latin phrase that means the unity of the great, meaning the cosmic scale, and the Planck scale, where energies are very high, and the middle, which is the middle scale, which is where we live. We live in the middle scale, where, you know, there's hydrogen and carbon and all these things, which, um, you know, in, under cosmic conditions of energy and at the Planck scale, all of those things disappear, and you just have protons and electrons and things like that. So that's what the GEM theory stands for. It, it originally was, I was originally following Einstein's idea that you could uni- take, you could separate 
the two long-range forces of nature. Of course, there are four known forces of nature. There's gravity and electromagnetism. Those are long-range forces. They reach all the way across the universe. Uh, and then there's the short-range forces of nature, which are limited to subatomic distances. That's the strong force and the weak force. The strong force is what causes big energy releases in nuclear uh, reactions. It's what makes the sun shine, hydrogen bombs go off, etc. Uh, the weak force, living up to its namesake, uh, basically clean is the maid service that cleans up after the um, strong force, which is sort of like a rock star, tears up the hotel room. Uh-huh. And then the maid surface uh, is the weak force that comes in and tidies up. It produces, uh, you know, the, the glow from a, a radium watch dial. That's an example of the weak force. It's, it, it does radioactive decay, and it's slow and involves, tends to involve small energy changes. So, you, you know, you're kind of like strong force is the setting off of an atomic bomb, and then the weak force is the slow radioactive decay of, of the stuff that's left at the site. It's the aftermath. So I originally intended to unify gravity and electromagnetism, which was the original idea of Einstein. Uh, Einstein was right about so many things, even, even when in his lifetime he thought he was wrong, like the cosmological constant. Um, you know, he was just a human being. He wasn't... Uh, he, he had... He had some misses, um, but he and he also didn't like quantum mechanics, so he tended to reject that, and that's I think that's what caused him to, um, you know, miss the great goal of his latter of his career in the last thirty years of his career, which was to unify gravity and electromagnetism. And his arguments, by the way, that they should be able to be unified were quite simple mathematics. Uh, he said, well, they both are inverse square law forces. Um, that was basically it. And um, he had the general uh, theory of relativity, which connected, you can have electromagnetism on one side of the equation and gravity on the other side of the equation. What Einstein also did, though, was... He was the one who discovered what was called the ZPF, the quantum ground state fluctuation, zero-point fluctuation. And that was used by Sakharov to basically say that gravity is not a pull, it's a push. It's the fact that you have all of this quantum ZPF creating radiation pressure that's pushing objects together. If you have two bright objects in a dark box, they will repel each other due to um, radiation pressure. But if you have two dark objects in a bright box, they will actually attract one another with a 1 over R squared force. Due to mutual shadowing, uh, they, if you're standing on one of the dark objects uh, and look around, you, you see a uniform brightness from the walls of the white-hot uh, box you're in, except you see a dark spot in the distance, and that's the other object causing shadowing. And this is an old, uh, by the way, this is an old idea for how gravity worked. It actually 
was kicked around even in the time of Isaac Newton. But um, Sakharov was the person who developed it most thoroughly, and then Hal, uh, Harold Putoff has uh, improved on it. Um, so uh, quanta, if you take quantum mechanics, you can start to make progress on unifying electromagnetism and gravity. Another person, by the way, who was a great inspiration to me, uh, because I went to his graduate school, uh, Teller Tech, at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, was Edward Teller. Uh, the first year I was there, I, I had always wanted to work on the unified field problem ever since I was a small child, um, when my father discussed it with me. And uh, there I was, finally, uh, with a bachelor's degree in physics, and I was at Teller Tech at Lawrence Thurmore National Lab. It was a graduate school where, founded by Edward Teller, and he was the um, major mover and shaker there. He was kind of a mentor to all of us. He was a very impressive character. And um, uh, he discussed his own attempt to find a unified field theory between gravity and electromagnetism. And he relied heavily on quantum mechanics, but he said he made very little progress, and uh, uh, he wasn't happy with it, so he published only a brief, one brief paper on it. But just the idea that Edward Teller viewed the unification problem of gravity and EMM as an important problem was very validating to me, and basically made me think, keep thinking. Um, I'm going to attack this problem, you know, once I get my Ph.D. in physics, uh, plasma physics, because uh, I was trying to harness fusion energy. So uh, I would, it was Einstein and Teller were the major inspirations for me in my early career to continue with this unified field theory. Um, and so uh, I have continued that. I'm... <laughs> It's, it's, uh, I started the real earnest um, investigation of this in 1975. I didn't publish my first papers on it until um, like 1986. And so I've been at this for a long time. And, um, but it's uh, been very gratifying and of course uh, I got big G the formula for big G and I found out that I found out at this meeting this summer at the American Physical Society meeting here I had the best physicists in the country and in the world in fact showing up for this meeting and they were talking about string theory and all these things and stuff and I found out from the group of people that showed up at my poster session that I am the only person with a formula for the gra Newton gravitation constant that's at all accurate and, and derived from a model, from a logical model. No one else has one. The closest uh, uh, formula is was published by Gerald de Hooft, who got the um, um, a Nobel Prize for Physics, I believe, in 2003. And he... Um, his theory for big, his model for big G uh, is an equation with a big question mark in the middle of it. It's like the old joke that uh, there's two scientists standing in front of a blackboard and on the 
in the middle of the complicated derivation on the board, it says, and there, are, here a miracle occurs. <laughs> so he threw in a term that was basically just a question mark with parentheses. My, my uh, formula has no question marks in it. I have a listener question for you on this. Yes. So it's actually a blog question from mm-hmm. uh, Fremont John. Does uh, your gem theory have applications in advanced propulsion? How soon can we expect practical applications? Uh, well, don't pack your bags for Mars just yet, but the one of the major advances of my theory is that it relates gravity to electromagnetism very directly. So it says you can modify gravity um, fields directly with electromagnetism. Um, in other words, it's not that the uh, electromagnetism creates an energy density, which creates a mass density, which then creates gravity. You can actually, because gravity fields are an electromagnetic phenomenon in my theory, you can actually write the gravitation uh, metric in terms of the stress-energy metric of the uh, <clears throat> electromagnetic field, and this can be done you know, fully relativistically. And here is the big, not only does it tell you you can have anti-gravity propulsion in space, but it also says that the gravity of the electromagnetism from the ZPF is actually creating an anti-gravity field so that the vacuum weighs nothing. My theory says that the vacuum weighs nothing because gravity and E&M are closely related. There. And uh, that caused as much stir as my calculation of the gravitation constant. Why, Why is that? Well, because everyone else's theory, um, they have this big problem with the fact that um, the ZPF should create a massive vacuum. The vacuum should uh, be denser than lead, and it isn't. It's empty. And my theory says it's empty because gravity and E&M, gravity can be modified by E&M. In other words, the electromagnetic fields in the vacuum counteract their own effect. They're generating mass, but they're also generating gravity modification that zeroes out the contribution due to their mass. So the end result of this is, yes, you can build uh, the U.S. US Enterprise, which you always see whizzing around space with no rocket exhaust coming out of it. That's because the USS Enterprise uses gravity modification. That's its impulse drive. And then when they really push it uh, beyond impulse drive, they get warp drive. Uh, they go from just bending space-time to twisting it into a pretzel. But that's science fiction. That is science fiction. But science fiction um, has often turned out to be prophetic. In fact, one of the really fascinating things about the gem theory is it says that the number 42.8503 is the answer to the question of what is the meaning of the universe uh, 
and everything. Uh, and uh, by the way, the number 42.85 is the mass ratio, the square root of the mass ratio of the electron to the proton, or the proton to the electron. So it's uh, it's a number 1836, and uh, but you take the square root of that, and it turns out it's the number 42.85, roughly 43. So that's uh, that turns out to be the most one of the most important parameters in the universe, and finally ends up sitting right in the middle of my equation for the Newton gravitation constant. So uh, that was, uh, and by the way, I had no idea that Hitchhiker's Galaxy, uh, Guide to the Galaxy, even existed. I'd never read it, and uh, I was far too busy uh, with my uh, career as a young physicist uh, to read stuff like that uh, at the time, and then found out later that this had been, uh, that this number 42 had popped up. But by the way, the, the origin of the number 42 in Hitchhiker's Guide apparently comes from Alice in Wonderland. Rule 42, all people more than a mile high must leave the courtroom, says the king to Alice. Uh, you have a caller on hold. You ready, sure, sure. You ready for this? Uh, yeah. Hi, caller. Welcome to the program today. Who are you? Where are you? Uh, this is John in Fort Worth. Hi there. Yeah. I oh, John in Fort Worth. Yes. Yes. You're the one who's actually checked my equation for Big G and found out that it's accurate. Yeah. I mean, I, I, we had to see if it was a trick, like, like the guy said. Uh, well, sure. And, 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 of course, the idea of rejecting me, I mean, to me, it, it definitely is a big clue that ought to be pursued, not uh, ignored. I mean, obviously, I... <laughs> I, well, you should talk to about a hundred people I talked to at the uh, APS meeting. They just, I, I show, you know, I pointed out the uh, one, one guy showed up at my poster, a gray beard, looking very grumpy, and he he walked up to my po- he walked right past me, right up to his post, right after the poster, took off his. Uh, glasses and was reading carefully all the equations and derivations and stuff and I I said, you know, do you need me to explain anything to you? And he turned to me and said, No, I can read for myself. <laughs> Maybe he's just jealous that he didn't think of it. But <laughs> Oh, he was just he was having a bad day. Well what what seems to me like I mean what like you mentioned earlier the problems of in quantum gravity and, and it it kind of it looks that there's a if your thing falls in the area I think is sometimes called emergent gravity, which is the which right. is a Sakharov idea, basically, mm-hmm. right? and that is that um, essentially instead of assuming gra- gravity is a, a spin to graviton particle, just like what you got out of the sure. relativity, you're assume you're really looking at the idea that it's a, a effect of the quantum vacuum being perturbed. Uh, by a real particle being there and creating yeah. a, um, if you almost look, but normally they, they, they show this, you know, elastic medium, you dump the planet in there and it shows you how it, how it curves space. Well, think of curves it as a yes. quantum vacuum and then dump a real particle in, how it perturbs the quantum vacuum and acts on all the other particles in it. That's what I think exactly. about it. Exactly. And, and that now, is the problem, a... The problem they have in quantum gravity... Uh, is that if you try to add a quantum of gravity called a graviton, mm-hmm. it generates its own gravity. 
Yes. And very quickly, uh, it's basically a snowball kind of effect, mathematically. You get this avalanche um, to more and more uh, energy in the gravity field. It finally overwhelms all the matter and turns the entire universe into one giant black hole. We're all doomed. So, so that's another, you know, that the ultraviolet catastrophe was one of those paradoxes, which mathematical models predicted that if you heated something hot enough, it would certain it would suddenly uh, outradiate the entire universe in ultraviolet. It's called the ultraviolet catastrophe, and you know, it was a predicted catastrophe of physics. And it should happen in, you know, according to the 1800s, it should happen in every steel mill where they were trying to melt steel. You should get the ultraviolet catastrophe. But obviously you didn't. And this is what led Planck to formulate quant. The the solution to the ultraviolet catastrophe was quantum mechanics, formulated by Max Planck. Mm -hmm. Now, right now we're confronting in attempts to quantize gravity with a similar kind of um, ultraviolet catastrophe. If you take very weak gravity fields, you can quantize them. And that basically means that to first approximation, you're saying that the gravitons don't have any mass themselves, they, or that their mass is so tiny that they can't, uh, they don't affect um, uh, the surrounding gravity field. The gravity field is all driven by matter um, or electromagnetic fields, and that the, the um, gravitons themselves are not contributing any mass to this gravity field. Unfortunately, once you try, that's only an approximation, a weak field approximation for gravity. Um, once you take away that um, constraint, uh, you, you know, you basically um, open the cage uh, on the um, and, and let the uh, parakeet fly out in the room, <clears throat> then uh, it immediately gets eaten uh, because the gravity, uh, the gravity starts making its own gravity and feeding on itself. It has a feeding frenzy on itself, basically. Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, people who are a lot smarter than me, who have worked on this stuff for 50 years, like I have, only they've worked exclusively on trying to quantum, <clears throat> make quantum mechanics apply to gravity. They've yeah. all given up at this point. They just say it can't be done. Some really top people have given it a try and failed. I agree with oh, that. Oh, Feynman, you know. Oh, yeah. Feynman basically showed that you could do gravity quantization for weak field gravity. And then when he tried to do successively better approximations to include the effect of um, the gravity of the quantum gravity, uh, it the, once again, the whole thing snowballed. And into a into a, he ended up with an ultraviolet catastrophe, effectively, and uh, gave up. 
Yeah. And um, that's that's a very important data point to me that a lot of really, really smart people are smarter than me. I consider myself a good, solid physicist. I'm a graduate of Teller Tech, Lawrence Livermore. Uh, I've, I've done a lot of uh, work in plasma physics and space physics that I'm very proud of. Uh, but, and, um, you know, I like the uh, microwave electrothermal thruster fueled by water propellant is now flying in space. I invented it. I have the patent on it. The patent has expired, of course, so I don't get any billions of dollars. But some people are now flying it in space, and it works great. They're, uh, it's called, they're a company called Momentus. They hired me as a consultant. I was very glad, glad to work for them and help them solve a few problems. Um, <clears throat> but so I'm, I consider myself a good physicist with a record of solid accomplishment. But, uh, you know, I don't consider myself in the same league as like Freeman Dyson or Einstein or anybody like that. I'm basically taking advantage of all the good work that they have done already. Uh, so for, for me, wasting time trying to quantize gravity fields, uh, the, the closest I'm coming in my theory is that if you have gravity can be a gravity field can be composed out of a bunch of electromagnetic fields, kind of in a packets. We know that the electromagnetic field can be quantized. So this gives me hope that we will be able to quantize gravity eventually. Once we have it, once we have unified gravity with E and M in a very complete way, the way to quantize gravity will become obvious because it will basically be a quantum uh, electromagnetic phenomenon already. Hey, John. Yes. Yes. Uh, you're both John. Well, there's a third John who wants to get into this. Fremont John All right. sent in a, another email. So John to John to John, okay. does gem theory um, relate to the physics of Mach thrusters? So since you're working with Dr. Woodward on Mach, Mach thrusters, uh, this can does, transition it there. It does in a very peripheral way. Um, Dr. Woodward is just a brilliant physicist. Well, he and doesn't he, understand Einstein's gra theory because Jack Serfati keeps telling him he's wrong. Well, in the opinion of Dr. Serfati, who is <coughs> also a brilliant fellow, <laughs> uh, and by, by the way, I can tell you that you can be a brilliant person in physics and still make big mistakes. I know that because I've uh, <laughs> I've been married and divorced twice. <laughs> but but I um, I will just say that, um, that Jim was... Woodward is convinced that we don't need a gravity E and M unification theory to make the mock effect work. However, it he will also. Uh, admit that it may be a um, a way to understand the Mach effect w once we have a unified E and M gravity um, theory. The Mach effect may be much easier to understand. Uh, right now, it is not. Um, 
why um, uh, inertia here should be, um, you know, a phenomenon caused by distant masses in the universe, which, you know, if you move something, uh, if you move your coffee cup on the coffee table, um, you can feel its inertia as you move it. And uh, we know that will eventually disturb the farthest stars, but that should take uh, billions of years for the light to propagate. And instead, we feel inertial instantly. However, there is apparently a small phase lag between the movement of a piece of mass and its inertial you know, back reaction. And that is where the mock effect exists. And uh, so anyway, I, uh, I have basically limited myself on the uh, Woodward project. At Basically, um, Jim Woodward says, John, we need high thrust levels from this device. And that's where we have to concentrate our efforts. So this is a primarily experimental effort. It doesn't matter what brilliant theory we produce. No one will care unless we can produce large levels of thrust. And I agree with him. So I've basically been helping more or less uh, just, uh, you know, I wind transformers for them. I, uh, uh, I you know, solder things together. And I also analyze data. Right now, we're looking for mathematical models of the thrust signatures that we're seeing. We've identified possibly a signature of the Mach effect mathematically, and how, it's related how, to a phase, phase lag. <clears throat> how, how, yes. do you, how do you know the thrust is not an artifact of all the experiments you're doing, and, oh, and it's none of they, this? They, they people keep talking keep talking about these Newtonian artifacts. You know, if, if that was true, if you could produce thrust with a Newtonian artifact, that meant every time I play the Brandenburg Concerto on my radio in my car, my car would levitate off the highway. It does, that's, that's ridiculous. You can't vibrate something and expect it to produce a steady-state thrust. That's completely violates Newton's laws. So when people say, oh, this is a Newtonian artifact, what they're saying is you're violating, uh, we're vi- you're only producing thrust because you're violating Newton's laws, and that's a, that's a self-contradiction. The only way you can vibrate something at high frequency and expect and, and, and produce a force that affects larger objects, is there's got to be some new physics involved. That's the only way to do it. Like I said, when I play the Brandenburg Concerto on my radio in my Dodge Challenger, 2017 Dodge Challenger, it does not levitate off the road. It doesn't. It's not affected at all. Why the Brandenburg could... Concerto as an example of that. All right. Uh, um, 
uh, because it, stones. Because, uh, because it vibrates is what you're saying. Yeah, just, it, yeah, it just vibrates. You're talking about a large object, my car, uh, receiving a thrust from a high-frequency vibration from the radio. And it doesn't, it, that just doesn't happen. And so these people keep saying, oh, this is a Newtonian artifact. There is no Newtonian artifact. That comes out of a, that's, that's bong water. I'm sorry. Not even good bong water. Well, one thing I'd like to bring up here is that if you want to increase more thrust, looking at this equation, the key thing seems to me to be going to higher frequencies since the thrust is oh, right. square right. frequency. Uh, well, he's looking um, for a strong resonance. You know, he's driving this piezoelectric, um, which is very, very, moves very, very fast and as it vibrates. And the faster you move it, the more uh, there is a, you know, every time you move anything, there's a small addition to its mass due to its kinetic energy. So the faster you move something, the faster you vibrate it, the more this addition occurs. And it's a relativistic effect. It comes from special relativity. Kinetic energy comes from special relativity, uh, even though the velocity is much lower than the speed of light. It still has an effect. And so... Uh, we find that the higher the frequency we can drive these uh, thruster prototypes, the better effect we're getting. And we are increasing the thrust. Uh, I won't uh, say how, by what, what factor, but uh, I consider it uh, to be good progress. I'm hoping that NASA agrees and gives us further funding to investigate this. I want this project very much to succeed, even though it doesn't really directly have anything to do with my gem unification theory. Yeah, well, it's more kind of into the basic of gravitational theory and a certain... Oh, it is. It is. It's a... Uh, um, well, he, he says, John, think of it. You shouldn't need to figure... You know, you, you, you shouldn't need electromagnetic unification theory with gravity to figure out why inertia occurs. Right. I mean, according to Wheeler in uh, Meisner, Thorne, and Wheeler, you know, the big book on gravity, uh, you can figure out inertia from an extension of the idea of frame dragging. Yeah. And that, and that seems to me to be one accepted thing that is Markian that's Clearly, in general relativity. Oh, absolutely, it's Machian, and you know, you if you if you spin some if you spin a shell around something, it will start dragging up other. You know, you have frame dragging, and it will create torques and on objects nearby. It just will, and that is uh, very Machian. John, do you have anything else? Otherwise, I'm going to take our break. Sure. Can I bring up one last thing before I go? One, one last thing. Very good. Okay. Uh, I think you're aware, perhaps aware or not, that, that Hal Putoff has studied some metamaterial that came from some unknown source, but it seems to be something that he doesn't know how to how to duplicate with known technology, at least when he studied it. Oh, and yes. Supposedly yes they I am aware, I'm aware of that, and I can, 
I can tell you that I talked with Hal Putoff back in the 90s about this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, he, he's now talking about it openly. Uh, I have I have kept quiet about his, our conversations this long well, because, uh, but he he talked about that they had this strange material lab and this, these were conversations Hal Putoff and I back in the 90s. So he's been working on that that long, and okay, well, he is a really like, smart guy. So um, now the beta materials, <clears throat> a great example of a beta material is a plasma. Because um, the speed of light, the index of refraction in a plasma, depending on how you measure it, can actually be um, negative under some yeah. circumstances. So, um, in fact, I better just leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, cool. The index of refraction of the speed of light in um, some materials like diamond is only half what it is. In a vacuum, we're talking about big fact. You know, diamond. If you want an example of a made of material, diamond. So um, anyway, anyway, the point I want to bring up is that they apparently found out that it sort of leaked out, but maybe shouldn't have. Is if you subject this object they have to very high frequency EMF in the range of terahertz, it actually yes. produces a notable thrust or force like you're looking for, and that seems. Well, that's uh, that's to the Woodward. That would be that would be great stuff. Yeah. Uh, once we can all order it from Home Depot, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll be in good shape. Uh, they, unfortunately, Hal and uh, whoever he got that stuff, they have not provided us at the uh, Woodward uh, Thruster Project with any of this material. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it got involved in the ATIP project that the VOD had, and that's, there's probably security around. Well, that's like, where it belongs. We know as much as we do. And, um, you know, one of, the, um, one of the problems with discussing all of this is there's apparently a large classified effort in this area. Yeah. I, I gotta go to break, John. So. Okay, oh, great, okay. Great. I just want to bring John, that great. up. Though. It's always great to talk to you, John. Uh, okay, John uh, Brandenburg, you gotta hold on. Don't go anyplace, okay? I'm not going anyplace. Okay, so listeners, while we're on break for a couple of minutes, I do want to uh, read our sponsor messages. So we do have Northrop Grumman, a leading global security company providing innovative systems, products, and solutions for commercial and governments globally. Uh, they go from undersea to outer space and to cyberspace. Uh, we also have the Space Foundation. Their 36th symposium is coming up rapidly in Colorado Springs, March 30th to April 2nd, the end of this month. Um, and this is where everyone in the world in space goes and connects with one another. So check it out at spacesymposium.org. Astrox sponsors us. They are involved in hypersonic space planes and reusable rocket designs for the Air Force, DARPA, and NASA. They've been doing it for more than three decades. They have proprietary codes, high side and space side. Uh, visit astrox.com for a lot more information. AIAA is our sponsor, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. It is the world's largest aerospace pro society. And... Um, they have five major events, lots of regional events, including breakfast meetings, luncheon meetings, dinner meetings, networking, which is unbelievable. 
a peer-reviewed library going back for decades, and people like Dr. B speaking to full houses overflowing into the hallway, going overtime by 30 and 40 minutes without one person leaving. That's what you get with AIAA. It is an exciting organization to be part of and to attend events with. And then Moonwards, what if a group of nations was determined to build a town on the moon and they based their decisions on technical and economic merit? Moonwards is building a digital vision of that town where you will be able to learn, play, build, and go to events. Visit moonwards.com to download an early draft demo of the town and to fund its development by subscribing. Help us help the world see a bigger future where we can leave our past behind us. Celesta sponsors us, and uh, they are still the only people sending memorial space flights to orbit, suborbit, to the moon, and soon elsewhere. Um, I am their customer, so I'm totally biased, but uh, they're a great company, and if you want to uh, memorialize your loved one with a space flight, with a little bit of their DNA or a little bit of their ashes, it's a great way to do it. You can include your own DNA with your loved one to uh, make the trip symbolically with them. So check out Celestus.com. The National Space Society sponsors us. They have ISDC coming up the end of May in Frisco, Texas. That's a suburb or sort of a suburb of Dallas. And uh, a lot of keynote speakers are going to be there that you're going to want to hear. You can get all the information you need, space.nss. Dot org. NSS does a lot of other great things, too, space settlement and more things. So uh, definitely you want to check that out. And then the Integrated Space Plan is a sponsor. This is a highly development chart flowing um, uh, in a flowchart format to show the path to becoming spacefaring. You can see how technology and destinations build upon one another, explore hundreds of individual elements in more detail at thespaceplan.com. And uh, you can buy your own copy of it. It comes in two different sizes. It's impressive. It's a great teaching tool. If you have family members or friends and you want to uh, help teach them about why space is so valuable. So that is thespaceplan.com. And uh, that is our intermission between the first and second segments. And remember that uh, we wouldn't be doing the show without our great sponsors. We do have... A few sponsorships left. If you're interested for 2020, please email me, drspace at thespaceshow.com. And, uh, John, I, I want to move on if I can, but oh, yes. uh, listeners keep asking you uh, some more of these questions about your gem theory. So I'm going to do one more, and, then, and then I'm going to put <clears throat> gem theory on hold for other topics. So Tim is um, down south. How does your gem theory relate to dark energy, and could the big rip take place in a universe governed by gem? Um, actually, that's a, that's a very good question. In the gem theory, um, the vacuum, the, uh, you know, people for a while were trying to do grand unification theories, and they found out the proton had to be unstable. Uh-huh to decay into, like, uh, electrons and anti-electrons and things like that. And um, in the gem theory, it is not the proton that is unstable. It's the vacuum itself. 
So the big rip doesn't occur in the gem theory. What is the big rip for those of us that don't uh, know? The, it. the big the big rip is that uh, it's one of these ultraviolet catastrophe kind of things where people extrapolate uh, equations to observed limits and. Uh, <clears throat> um, Basically, the big rip is that you have dark energy causing the expansion of the universe. It's kind of an anti-gravity effect. And so the universe starts expanding more and more rapidly till finally space-time itself uh, starts expanding so rapidly that even the atoms making up materials, first the galaxies and then finally the even the atoms making up materials get ripped apart because the... the Space-time is expanding so rapidly. So um, that doesn't occur in the gem theory. What instead occurs is that if you take a, a cubic yard of pure vacuum and watch it for a billion years, there'll be a tiny little spark, and out of that will fly a proton and an electron uh, and some electromagnetic uh, waves and some gravity waves, of course. So you'll have uh, the space-time itself starts breaking down into into hydrogen to refuel the universe. So you could say the gem theory is a little bit, um, gives you kind of a Pollyanna kind of universe where everything turns out okay in the end, and it lives happily ever after. Now that may, may be that I simply haven't uh, <laughs> haven't delved into the theory deep enough. I'm sure we'll find a bo- boogeyman under the bed someplace. Have you written up the gem theory in a new revised book, or is your book from a couple of years ago still valid? The book is from a couple of years ago, <coughs> and uh, I'm preparing a, a chapter for a, another book coming out, so we'll, it'll be uh, discussing some of these things, but it'll that'll be a <coughs> highly mathematical uh, um exercise. I will be coming out with a more lay version of the gem theory, particularly now because it's a coast-to-coast unification theory. It it unexpectedly, I intended just to unify gravity and NM, but the particles, it w- since it has to involve quantum mechanics, the gem theory also predicts, gives formulas for particle masses, like the proton or this new X-17 particle that's associated with the fifth dimension in the in um, the gem theory. So uh-huh. it has to predict particles, and it does. And you find out that one of the first sets of particles it predicts, kind of the lowest energy, is the pion, the pion of, uh, that carries the strong force, uh-huh. the force. And the uh, Z and um, um, W particles, which carry the weak force. So those fell out of the theory unexpectedly. You can see this. There is a uh, book out on um, Amazon.com called The Gem Theory that discusses this. <coughs> and, Mike, it, uh, not only was it unexpected... But it predicts the mass of the pion, which carries the strong force, uh, the neutral and uh, charged pions, and the W and Z particles, 
to very, very high accuracy. We're talking um, less than a percent accuracy. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, accuracies of a part per thousand. So I haven't even delved into that deeply simply because it was unexpected. And uh, but just says that if you constant, it basically says that the weak and the strong force are kind of analogous metaphysical, uh, you know, metaphorical versions of gravity and E&M at long range. So instead of having just uh, two long range forces, you not only have the long range force, but because you have this additional hidden dimension, this fifth dimension you get kind of um, uh, a weak and a strong force at subatomic distances, um, kind of as an image of the, uh, <clears throat> of the strong, of the uh, E&M and gravity forces at long distances. Um, so that's my... The major focus has always been in the gem theory to produce advanced propulsion for space. So I haven't looked at the strong and the weak force except to note, you know, that these masses of these exchange bosons just fall out of the theory. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, you went to the grocery store and discovered they've... Um, They've thrown in some pomegranates <clears throat> into your uh, grocery bag when you weren't looking. And you get home, and there you've got uh, pomegranates and uh, bananas that you didn't actually pay for. They just apparently threw them in your uh, grocery bag as a bonus for shopping at their store. So <laughs> that's the best way I can explain it right now. It's all, it's all, uh, it's all rather complicated and confusing. Um, but I do understand the relationship between gravity and E and M. So I have um, – moving on, I want to read a question that we got uh, regarding your uh, nukes on Mars work. Sure. So uh, this is from uh, James. Uh, from what I've seen, Dr. B designs – sizes a giant nuclear weapon – to specifically produce the Xenon-129 in the Mars atmosphere. However, he does not mention the other Xenon isotopes generated by the same U-235 or whatever other fissionable isotope uh -huh. one can select. So the question is, how do the quantities of all the other Xenon isotopes generate by his hypothesized nuclear explosions compare with one actual Mars atmosphere Xenon isotope quantity? A fingerprint is not one xenon isotope, but more than one. I propose that the fingerprints of both do not match, i.e. the percentages of all the xenon isotopes by the Mars atmosphere and the percentages of all the xenon isotopes for any nuclear fission explosion do not match within an appropriate or acceptable error. So what do you say to Jim? Uh, <clears throat> well, this is an excellent question. Um, is there in I've you know I've said there's a, this excess of xenon 129, and this is by the way the signature uh, in general of what's called an R process uh, that occurs in either supernovas or hydrogen bombs. 
You can look that up on Wikipedia. R stands for rapid. means the rapid absorption of intense high-energy neutron bombardment uh, by nuclei. So, as opposed to S process, which is slow. But R process occurs in the supernova explosion, and it produces an excess of xenon-129 over other xenon isotopes. Now, the question is, it also produces other xenon isotopes. Does the total amount of xenon on Mars ratio to, say, argon-38, which is a... Um, <clears throat> a uh, another um, inert gas. How does that match? Now, uh, in my book, I did discuss this, the book Death on Mars. Uh, one of the things I did discuss in detail was the amount of krypton on Mars. Krypton is another... Um, uh, inert gas generated by nuclear explosions, and um, it has a it has a signature for a nuclear explosion also that um, you produce uh, more uh, light krypton isotopes than you do <clears throat> heavy krypton isotopes. It's nothing so dramatic as the xenon, but but the other advantage of krypton is you make a lot more krypton when you set off a nuclear weapon or have a a, um, a supernova go off than you do um, uh, just in normal um, uh, processes of atomic decay and nuclear decay. So um, I do know that there is more krypton on Mars. And, you know, you basically say, well, what is your yardstick for saying you've got a certain amount of krypton that's either usual or unusual? Uh, basically, they ratio the amount of krypton to argon-38. Argon-40, for instance, is produced by neutron bombardment of potassium. So if you had a nuclear weapon go off, obviously you make a lot of argon-40. <clears throat> now... Argon-38, however, is very much primordial and is not produced uh, in nuclear explosions. So you would consider that would be kind of a good yardstick to use. If you have an atmosphere and has xenon-129 um, xenon and, and krypton-84, for instance, and you ratio that amount to the amount of argon-38, then you would have kind of a measure of uh, whether things were Earth-like. We assume that there was no big nuclear explosion on Earth like this. And that would mean, um, um, that would kind of give you one ratio of, of krypton to uh, argon-38, for instance. When I did that on Mars, there's a lot more krypton on Mars uh, per um, when compared to argon-38 uh, than there is on Earth. So um, I, I can't remember doing that calculation for xenon, but at least for krypton, there's definitely a sign that a large amount of krypton was kind of added to the system that wouldn't normally 
be there from just normal outgassing like occurred on Earth. And, of course, I'm assuming that Earth is a normal case. The only problem with that is we don't know. This, this planet has gone through a lot of strange things that we don't understand. <clears throat> uh, the whole situation is a little bit like the joke about the fellow who loses his wallet in a town with only a small... He, he's in a small town, and he loses his wallet, and he ends up, after after dark, looking under the only streetlight in the town, looking desperately in the area of light under that streetlight for his wallet. And someone asks him, why are you looking under the streetlight for the wallet uh, when it could be anywhere in this small town? And he says, it's the only place I can see anything. So uh, some scientists, scientists sometimes are forced into a situation where they have to just use the data they have. And uh, in our case, uh, we have Xenon-38 on Mars and on Earth. We have Krypton and Xenon. And I can tell you the Krypton is anomalous. And that makes a lot more, uh, I think, uh, you know, um, Somewhat more krypton is made in a nuclear explosion than is made than the than xenon. So there, I can give you just a partial answer, and I'll try and uh, come up with a better answer in the uh, <clears throat> next week or so. Well, if you if you let me know, I'll post it on the blog. Sure, there you go, Dave. And uh, once I find out, I'll I'll, I'll post it. Is there? But a... I did look at the amount of krypton in the Martian atmosphere versus like. Argon-38, and it was definitely elevated over Earth. Uh, is there any news on your nukes on Mars? Is there any new data? Uh, oh, well, it, the, the, the major news um, is not really news. It's just the fact that I found out that people have done simulations of our process. I mean, you can't go looking around on the net and find... Uh, Xenon-129, Xenon mass spectrum, isotopic spectrum from nuclear explosions in the 50s, which is, I say the 50s because the nuclear weapons in those days were very unsophisticated. They were just brute force, and um, and they were big. Um, so if you were going to try to look at something on Mars, you'd expect it would be big and kind of crude and brute force. So um, I found that, you know, that there's examples in the literature of this Xenon-129XS found in meteorites that have never been to Mars um, and also in simulations of uh, supernova. And what The reason they find the, the interpretation is that they find the Xenon um, from supernova in the um, primordial meteorites is that the Earth, the whole solar system was apparently formed as a result of a big supernova explosion in this neighborhood. Uh, and in fact, the whole solar system was quite radioactive when it was first formed. It did not pass uh, OSHA regulations. So, um, so that's good. So basically I found um, in the literature signature of our process, which is the big process in hydrogen bombs and supernova. So we know that on Mars, 
there was either a supernova or a big hydrogen bomb explosion. And we know it wasn't a supernova because Mars wouldn't exist if there was a supernova uh, on Mars. And I might also point out that the other planets in the solar system, including Earth and Jupiter and uh, the other planets where we've been able to sample um, uh, xenon isotopes and krypton isotopes, they all look the same. Mars still sticks out like a sore thumb with a signature of our process, which you can look up on Wikipedia. Um, how does this theory advance, or does it? Well, it advances because you um, some people decide to take it seriously, um, and they very quietly include uh, sensors on a probe that lands on Mars, and they sample in the soil, and they look for other isotopes that are produced by our process, like uh, plutonium-244 that has like a 100 million year uh, half-life and is made in hydrogen bomb explosions. Believe it or not, plutonium isn't just consumed in hydrogen bomb explosions. It's made by the uranium leftover. Uh-huh. So it's very possible, in, in my opinion, it's very possible that the Vandenberg, um, that they launched the last this inside probe from Vandenberg. Right. Because it had a classified payload, and that payload is looking, has already looked in the soil of Mars for um, forensic isotopes related to a large nuclear explosion there. But like you. Plutonium 244. So. We discussed launching Insight from Vandenberg with you yep. and others, and the official explanation was launch schedule at the Cape didn't prevent it, prevented it from scheduling, so they uh, scheduled it out of Vandenberg because that was the best time to do it and get it to Mars. So they, they, had, an ex- they had a plausible excuse. They got a story. One of the good things about the coronavirus – uh-huh. Thing, uh, one of the few good things is to show Americans that there are governments on this planet, in this case the government of the People's Republic of China, which lie even more to their people than our own government. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it just happens. Uh, um, you just, governments basically tell their people, uh, they decide what they need to do, and then they get a story together, and they tell the people what that is. So what are you supposed to believe from a government? Because if you go through life believing zero, that's a, a pretty frustrating experience. I, I know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I know that, uh, um, I mean, <laughs> the government of France... <laughs> People are always holding up, you know, there's a certain school of thought in this country that says that we all ought to move to France because the France got, French government is far more moral and truthful and everything than our own government. And, of course, that's, that's complete nonsense. And uh, uh, that's, that, that you can only say that because the French government that is in existence now has only been in existence for, like, 30 years. 
French change their constitutions uh, like a race car ch- changes tires. And um, so, <laughs> so uh, I will just say that um, the fact that knowledge is power and knowledge is imp- therefore empowerment means that governments um, on certain subjects uh, will deny power to the public. They'll keep power to themselves by knowledge. Now, if you talk then to the government about this, um, they will tell you, um, well, this is not Civics 101 we're doing here. Uh, we are the pilot and co-pilot of an airliner, and one of our engines has quit. <laughs> and we are not going to tell all the passengers on the airplane that our, one of our engines has just quit. Uh, we're simply going to tell them uh, that we're stopping, uh, we're making an unscheduled stop to do <laughs> maintenance. Because we don't want the passengers to get all upset, and interfere with our ability to fly this airplane. There, in an emergency. That's their attitude. Well, they're certainly getting upset with the stock market. You can see it there. Oh, yeah, I mean, exactly. Oh, oh actually, the, the great story I heard about that was that the stock market had gotten really high. And all of these characters, uh, crafty characters sitting around in boardrooms on Wall Street, wanted to cash in on all these stocks that they considered overvalued. So when the coronavirus came out, they said, ah, that's our story. <laughs> Why are we selling all our stocks and taking taking profits uh, at, the risk, at the risk of triggering a recession? And they'll say coronavirus. I can also report that uh, I was in New Mexico recently for a meeting, and we had lots of Corona beer uh, provided by the hosts. Uh, and uh, the explanation of why it was all Corona beer was that because of the coronavirus, no one was buying Corona beer anymore. <laughs> so they'd slash prices on it. <laughs> this is in New Mexico. Um, so... Looking for confirmation of your nuclear bomb theory on Mars, it, there's just no way to get it, is there? Uh, no, the government is not going to call me up and tell me, oh, John, you were right. Well, nobody would believe them if they did. They, so, they, yeah. They just, uh, so, so, but, I mean, other than through government, there's no way that anyone can expect the scientific government, confirmation. Uh, in my view... The government, being the pilot and co-pilot of a airliner full of passengers, will decide when we're safely on the ground someplace to announce, yes, we had trouble with one of our engines. <laughs> uh, or, yes, we discovered uh, once we land on Mars and um, have a base there, then they will suddenly announce, oh, you'll never guess what we found on Mars. Well, it, it would seem to me that if we're really going to get there with people yes. um, and the people are independent of government astronauts. Uh, Which they won't be. 
Well, uh, what if they bring citizens up, you know, like like Mr. Musk wants to? Do? Oh no, no. The, the, well, the first people who land on like, like the first people who landed on the moon, they'll be all military. So, so I was going to think that maybe you can get some independent collaboration, although where they might land with passengers would be pretty the far first, from your the area. The first, uh, you know, the first five crews that go to land on the Martian surface will be carefully, carefully screened to make sure that nobody was capable of independent thought is allowed on the mission. So the past, the idea that normal people, passengers, will go to Mars, you're not supportive of that? Oh, no, it, that'll happen eventually, yes. Um, I'm quite confident. Con- in fact, I'm quite confident that the U.S. government <clears throat> will decide to announce, to confirm the things that I put in my Mars books. I, I have a couple more. In, in, the fa- in a fairly short period of time, simply because it, they will consider it is to their advantage to do so. I, I have a couple questions coming in for you about Nukem on Mars. So uh, one is from Bill in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And Bill in Virginia says, if I'm not mistaken, Mr. Musk has proposed terraforming Mars with multiple hydrogen bomb tests on it to uh, change Mars atmosphere um what are your thoughts about that whether it's feasible or not uh that reminds me of someone else maybe wanting to have terror to have terraformed mars in the past with a couple of big giant nuclear explosions uh well if you take a planet that's already like earth and drop two big hydrogen bombs on it it turns it into mars and uh so perhaps the reverse process is also possible uh, I view uh, uh, Elon. I'm I'm nor, I'm a big fan of Elon Musk and what he's doing, but I regarded his discussion of um, setting off big hydrogen bombs on Mars without giving me any credit for the idea, <laughs> with a certain amount of annoyance. He's another person who hasn't called me up. Well, and, uh, well, aside from ego damage, what's what's the validity of the idea? Uh, oh, um, it would be a big experiment. Uh, you could vaporize um, the northern and southern polar caps on Mars and uh, put inject a lot of water vapor and uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere of Mars. Um, creating a greenhouse effect that would warm up Mars, at least temporarily. The water vapor uh, is the most powerful greenhouse gas there is, or at least one of them. And uh, unfortunately, it will freeze out as snow all over Mars uh, fairly quickly. The carbon dioxide will stay in the atmosphere for a long time. So, you you know, you'd have to model this thing on uh, great big computers to see what it would happen, and then um, uh, and then you'd have to be suspicious of the results. Uh, it would be it would be a giant experiment. It would be a giant experiment. And in fact, the one of the hazards is you might make the surface of Mars highly radioactive, so that no humans colony could actually be put there.
Would the radioactivity be short-lived since it's from a nuclear bomb? Well, you would try and uh, you can make um, you can make actually very clean nuclear uh, weapons that produce very little residual act- radioactivity. They're very fusion-rich. They don't have any fission components like the bomb. The bombs that I proposed went off on Mars are were drew about half of their energy from fission because they had a big uranium jacket around them. If you take away the uranium jacket and just build big, big hydrogen bombs, you might be able to terraform uh, Mars. Um, uh, and not have any uh, a, a great deal of residual radioactivity, um, but it would be a big experiment. John, I... Uh, I I remember. By the way, <clears throat> I want you to recall the Sedan Crater experiment out in Mojave in the, in Nevada. Yeah, they set off a hydrogen bomb and dug this big crater, and the idea was to see if they could dig a new Panama Canal with nuclear uh, explosions, and the the poor scientist who had proposed this whole idea was so certain that all the radioactivity would be trapped under the soil down in the crater that he rappelled down into the crater a couple hours after the bomb had gone off. And then he uh, got back out, uh, and he seemed fine, and then uh, next year he developed uh, terrible leukemia and died from radiation exposure. So... Just because these people uh, are willing to repel down into the craters on Mars formed by these giant explosions doesn't mean that that they're actually safe. What was the name of that experiment? Uh, It was called the Sedan Experiment. Okay, and I forgot. I have someone on hold who's been holding for ever since the beginning of Mars. Put them on. Put them on. Caller, are you still there? I am. I totally uh, screwed up. We commend up. you for your patience. Th- this sir. is my screw-up day. You're a scholar and a gentleman. Uh, go ahead. Of course I'm a scholar and a gentleman. This is John from Montana. That's right. Um, and by the way, Bill from Virginia stepped all over one of my two questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that's what just... happens when you're placed on hold. Oh, yeah. Um, I I guess I'm curious about what the planetary protection people would have to say if um, if there were serious proposals to uh, evaporate the uh, polar caps on Mars to attempt to terraform it. Uh, I think they would probably not I be was, too If pleased. I was on one of those committees, I would say, um, let's not do this. Uh, let's study this some more before we do it. Um, right. I just think um, Mars, as it is, has a fairly benign surface environment, and um, if you have, like, uh, big um, fusion, let's say you end up with big fusion-powered atmospheric processing units, like in uh, the movie Aliens, I always like that one. Um, then uh, if you have those running all over the planet for maybe 10 years, maybe you can make a lot of carbon dioxide from the soil. Yeah. And, uh, you know, create a greenhouse effect and uh, warm up Mars so that um, 
you know, it becomes a shirt sleeve, uh, a shirt sleeve environment, uh, as opposed to being spacesuit environment now. And so I would, um, you know, the, both the Russians and the United States tried uh, solving. <laughs> Uh, problems with, uh, by setting off big nuclear weapons and, uh, you know, to make lakes for irrigation and uh, right. maybe dig another Panama Canal. And both experiments turned out very badly. Right. So I would just say that's a cautionary tale. Um, and uh, that uh, I would hope that uh, adult supervision would be present. Well, and would, would be sure that these ideas uh, were kind of squashed before they get uh, get too dangerous. Yeah, that, that gets back to the idea of don't screw with a life support system until you understand it. Oh, exactly. If, if, if you're living uh, you in know. it. Uh, my other questions were more related, I think, to the gym theory, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, you're dancing around a little bit on the idea of maybe... Lesage gravitation, which is that repulsive gravitation. Oh, yes. There was Lesage, a... uh, I believe, yeah, was the scientist Lesage was back at the time of Newton. Right. And Newton and, Newton and he corresponded. Right. And uh, the problem was they could never get, there were just always, uh, you, you could basically, to first order, you could say, okay, gravity is this radiation pressure caused by these the sea of par dancing particles. Right. Uh, and you can get a 1 over R squared attraction force from it. But then a host of other problems occurs, such as, well, okay, like I said, you can have a, uh, a white-hot box with two dark objects in it, you know, floating in the, uh, on the space station. And they attract one another with one over R squared force. Great, but the problem is, is both particles don't stay dark for very long. They they get hot. Right, and then hot, also uh, and uh, you have the uh, other related problem of uh, absorbing those hypothetical particles uh, in a nonlinear way, depending on the scale of the experiment you're looking at. Exactly. So if, if uh, small a balls, whole host uh, of secondary problems occurs, right. and and people, a, a lot of really smart people, beginning at the time of Newton, actually analyzed Lesage's you know model, and finally decided that it just, um, well, they they basically said well. Gravity must remain kind of a mystery right now because, yes, we have a simple explanation for gravity is due to the absorption of this kind of radiation. But, the, you know, we don't know where the energy, that means an influx of energy into the particles that are attracting each other, and we don't know why they don't get hot. And... Um, so there's energy conservation problems that uh, just can't be solved. And about uh, uh, yeah, about two decades ago, there was a symposium uh, on Lesage gravity that was held in uh, a fellow from the University of Puget Sound. I can't remember his name now, 
ended up editing a book of the uh, proceedings, and it was pretty interesting reading. It had some of uh, Tom Van Flandern's work. Uh, in oh, it, Tom uh, Van Flandern. Before he died. Oh, hello. And, uh, but I was just wondering how that might link to your idea of uh, oh, it, it, uh, actually, adjusting. It does link. Uh, very, the, the reason I can use it, kind of invoke it, is because Sakharov linked it right. to the zero-point fluctuation. Right. Uh, and that, that was according my... To, uh, according to quantum that mechanics... That implies every, another question. Yeah, every, according to quantum mechanics... Uh, you know, which was worked out by Einstein, of all people, every particle in our beings, uh, every proton, electron, quark, etc., is dancing in a sea of intense radiation. Right. Uh, and yet, uh, they're not getting hot. Uh, they seem right. to be radiating uh, energy away as fast as they're absorbing it. So, I mean... People talk about the problem of the vacuum, the zero-point energy in the vacuum causing this, what's, what has been called the most embarrassing number in physics. It's right, the high density. Of it. The high density of the, of the supposedly empty <laughs> vacuum. And so, well, if you add particles to that, it gets even worse because... Uh, the particles all must be absorbing. Why don't the particles absorb energy from the zero-point fluctuation? And Sakharov, bless his heart, uh, Sakharov, by the way, apparently came up with this because he was doing a basically Lesage gravity in the Russian hydrogen bomb. He was setting off an atomic bomb in a casing, and uh, it was the Teller-Ulam design, and uh, this would create all this uh, radiation pressure, which would crush the sphere of hydrogen isotopes to make the hydrogen bomb go off. And um, so he wrote a simple little, like, uh, you know, half-page article just saying, linking gravity mathematically to... Um, uh, it, it was a mathematical paper. I mean, it, it, he, he basically said, if we assume the uh, radiation field uh, goes down to the Planck uh, scale, then we get, that's where we get big G, mm -hmm. the Planck scale. And, um, and so uh, Sakharov basically was doing Lesage gravity, only he used the zero point, Quantum zero point, and in fact, this is one of my jokes, is, uh, you know, if people ask me, uh, point out some contradiction in my theory, I say, well, that's because of quantum mechanics. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's just, it's like um, um, quantum mechanics has so many mysterious things associated with it. And so many unanswered questions, like, you know, of course, the most embarrassing number in physics, that uh, you can basically uh, wrap the, uh, the mystery flag of quantum mechanics about, around just about everything that uh, doesn't work out at the first order and use that as at least a temporary argument as to why a theory is not nonsense. You'll just say, well... 
uh, the th- this theory is not nonsense because it's relying on a quantum effect, which no one understands. Well, and that brings up another set of issues uh, that you might uh, clarify, and that is um, in in uh, getting rid of the high density, if you will, mm-hmm. you have you, you have to link electromagnetism with gravity and in some fashion, and that implies some kind of relationship involving the speed of light, which shows up everywhere uh, in yeah. those kinds of calculations. Now, with that, uh, uh, you have uh, Woodward saying that that's the vacuum speed of light, and Buddy, who is, uh, I believe, a protege of, of Hal Putoff, who says that no? It's a local speed of light in a material. Oh, I mean, you and then he goes uh, on you're with mentioning Sarfati. Yeah, uh, Sarfati and, and uh, Hal Putoff are you know are colleagues and and and, right. uh, and friends, but I wouldn't say that they their models of uh, gravity and E and M and everything are the same. Um, uh, you know, Jack's. Uh, you know, Jack uses a much different formalism, and um, he's kind of coming at it from a far more quantum mechanical kind of aspect. Where right. you know, once again, things are mysterious. Uh, you know, here's here's an example of, of uh, the quantum mystery force is the Pauli exclusion principle. Mm-hmm. That that basically says that matter takes up space, so that two objects can occupy the same space at the same time, uh, like a golf ball and a um, um, you know a golf club. Yeah, or the, or the quantum. If, one, if, if, if it wasn't yeah. the Pauli exclusion principle, uh, the golf club would go right through the uh, golf ball, and then nothing would move. But we know that it right. doesn't. And so then you ask, and, I, and by the way, I was in graduate school when I asked this, and my uh, I, I had a really beloved professor named Abe Goldberg. He was just he was just uh, he was he was a very clever fellow and good at answering questions and uh, very wise. And uh, but I remember one day asking him. Why does the Pauli exclusion principle mean that electrons in the same state repel each other? And he looked at me and he says, because their wave functions are anisymmetric. <laughs> Whatever works. So I asked him, I said, Dr. Goldberg, why are their wave functions anisymmetric? He says, because they're spin one-half particles. And I said, well, why does the spin one-half particles make their wave functions to be anisymmetric? <laughs> and he said, read this article by Polly, and it'll explain it. <laughs> and I read the article, and it was all completely dense mathematics. It was completely impossible for me to follow. So I, I went to him later, and I said... Uh, you know, I said, I tried to follow this article by Polly, and, uh, you know, I couldn't follow it. He says, well, there you go, John. <laughs> I've answered your question. <laughs> and what I found out was even 
even Feynman was asked this question and didn't know how to answer it. So, but Sarfati thinks that the speed of light is is in a media and does all of his work that way. But Putoff doesn't seem to say that. Well, if you you know if if you if you measure the speed of light in a diamond, yeah, it's half, a half times slower than it is in um, a vacuum. Right. But that's but that's visible light. If you fire a uh, high-energy gamma ray through a diamond, it'll go at the speed of light, no problem at all. So it's it's only um, long wavelength phenomenon where the speed of light you know slows down. And see, it's possible to create made of materials. And I was kind of disappointed when I found this out. I thought, oh, made of materials. This sounds like a real new material science thing. No, it just means loading up plastic with, like, metal or magnetic particles or something like that to affect their uh, electromagnetic properties. And you can create, uh, well, the simplest made of material is one I just invoked, a diamond. It slows down the speed of light. And if you take that, the speed of light goes in Einstein's equations divides big G, the gravitation constant, by C to the fourth power. So if you take, change the speed of light um, by a factor of two and a half to the fourth power, that's changing Einstein's equations by a factor of about 50. And so you ought to be able to see that. That means a diamond... Uh, would have much less inertia than uh, equal uh, number of uh, of carbon atoms, like in charcoal. So, well, so that's the basis of Woodward's uh, uh, critique of Scarfati's assertion about the speed of light in that right, coupling constant and being having, local, uh, having been. In a few uh, verbal um, <laughs> battles with uh, old old Jack, I call him Wolfman Jack because it, mm-hmm. once in a full moon he goes on these angry tirades against somebody or other on his email. Uh, uh, you know, it, you know. After having a couple arguments like that with Jack Sarfati about this or that, I, I just uh, if and you know. Jim, Jim Woodward just shrugged his shoulders and said, well, I told uh, Jack what I thought of his ideas, and he was angry with me <laughs> and remains angry yeah. with me. <laughs> and that's, he says he hasn't answered my objections. He just, he just uh, um, says all these nasty things. Uh, the, uh, an, the other John, God, there's been four Johns on this show. Unbelievable. Hey, John is a great name. Um so this this is from John sitting there in the cow pastures of Fort Worth, okay? The gravitational constant is, in general relativity, is dependent upon the speed of light in media is just wrong. 
wrong. He, right. Somebody's got the coronavirus and they're coughing into the space show. You guys, I hope you're putting a towel over your damn telephone. Uh, he, he seems to be ignoring the basics. He told me that I have no physical intuition. This is because John of Fort Worth, Calville, actually contacted Sarfati about this. The C to the fourth is just... He has my deepest sympathy. ...is just part from putting time and space in the same units and energy and mass in the same units for the rest. The speed of light in relativity is about causality, which limits the rate light and everything else move. This was discovered by studying light, i.e. the Michelson-Morley experiment, but it is more fundamental. So for those of you that understand what we're talking about, I hope this is helpful for most of you like me. Uh, Sarfati, Woodward, and all of this provides grand entertainment. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and uh, Jack Sarfati is a brilliant scientist. I will easily say that. And he, he makes good defenses of, you know, general relativity. Uh, against people, some there a lot of people out there don't believe in general relativity, and Jack very ably, you know, argues why general relativity makes physical sense in addition to mathematical sense. Uh, he uh, usually doesn't stop there, but adds a bunch of uh, comments about uh, the persons who questions him's bad character or something like this. Or, <laughs> but, but anyway. I'll just say that that um, I tend to tend to side with Jim Woodward on this. That the speed of light is the honest to God speed of light in vacuum in the Einstein equations. Jurist, anything more from you? I can't say John anymore because there's too many Johns today. Well, my only comment would be that uh, John was in a cow pasture isn't the only one in a cow pasture. Uh, by Brandenburg, what were you saying? We could form a, a recreational ranch in Nevada and call it, you know, the uh, the Johns Club. <laughs> and and <laughs> and Juris, you're indicating that someone else is in a cow pasture. Yeah, I am. <laughs> well, that's right. And you're still missing two cows, and you reject my alien abduction oh. of the cattle theory. Oh. Only one cow missing. Oh, you found the other one. Well, yeah, there were three initially, and then two were recovered. And so one of them still <coughs> remains abducted. Or something. <laughs> uh, well, um, uh, by the way, uh, John, you, you mentioned living up in that. They, they did discover that very interesting kind of wolf-like creature near uh, Malmstrom Air Force Base. Yeah, and then Some they, they, shot they it. showed all these pictures of it, and then they said, "Oh, it's just a wolf." <laughs> what was it? Oh, it wasn't a wolf. It, it was some kind of wolf dog hybrid. It looked like to me. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you live in Montana. You know what a wolf careful. looks like. That. that that was not a wolf. I've got. Yeah. A couple of emails here that I've got to read real quick. So, Anthony. No, but uh, anyway, John, the only reason I mention that is that I actually had an incident like that in my novel about the collapse of the UFO cover-up. Uh-huh. And the local ranchers shoot this weird 
it's a mountain lion human wolf hybrid <laughs> and then the fish and game uh, so sh- the fish and game authorities show up and confiscate it <laughs> Well, you know, Malmstrom uh, Air Force Base also had some uh, really curious uh, reported incidents of UFOs and some of their missiles going offline. Oh, oh, and David, oh, oh that's, as that's you know, why I mentioned uh, uh, that this weird wolf was in the vicinity, was killed in the vicinity, and um, then the government said, "Oh, it's just an ordinary wolf." <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, that's what the that's what the uh, in my novel the uh, the ra- local ranchers you know are so happy to see the Fish and Game Association or commission show up and take the body and say they'll give them a report and <laughs> of course <laughs> guys uh, the UFO cover up organization is actually masquerading as the Fish and Game. I, I've, I've got a couple of emails. One oh, is, okay, okay. One is from Anthony at uh, Griffith Observatory. Uh, Tony, I should say. Now that we know there are asteroids and comets from extrasolar systems, could the Martian excess have been <laughs> been delivered from elsewhere? Well, that's a very interesting idea. Uh, yeah, we know that uh, we know now that um, stuff from outside the solar system arrives here, and um, so yes, perhaps it was a, the, the problem with that is that a comet xenon is not a very common element. It's it's kind of exotic, and so there's hardly any. If you take a regular comet, and, you know, they've landed on comets now, and by the way, they found the same xenon isotope profile as on Earth. The xenon-132 and xenon-129 were were almost the same, unlike Mars. So, uh, so it's the same solar system baseline. But, um, it, or if, if you have an asteroid... Uh, with xenon, you know, trapped gas inside it, the, the amounts of xenon per ton, you, you'd have to get, you'd have to hit Mars with an asteroid or a comet almost as big as as the Earth's moon to 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 bring enough xenon to actually change Mars xenon from being kind of Earth normal to being what it is now. It just uh, half of Mars would be gone. It's my. It's the. I did an estimate of how big an asteroid would have to be to hit Mars to bring uh, enough xenon one twenty nine, assuming it was all anomalous, and it was just literally an astronomical amount of material, enough to cover the entire Martian surface to the depth of about a kilometer. So I just I just thought that's ridiculous. He has another question for you. Sure. Um, could the isotopes of Mars have been delivered by a well? It's the same question, just worded uh, mm-hmm. a different way. Uh, so um, I'm, I think it's the same. Let me see. He sent in two questions. Could the isotopes of Mars have been delivered by an extrasolar comet or asteroid? I think that's the question I read. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so so it's the same question. You have another one uh, from um, another John, Fremont John. Uh, it seems like it's... John Fremont? Uh, yeah. John so, from Fremont or John Fremont? He's called Fremont John on, on the show. And it's... Uh, um, oh, he wants to call in. Juris, get your butt off the phone. Okay, thanks for the time. <laughs> and watch out for strange wolf-like creatures. Do you have anything else to say right. before you exit, John? No, I'm still looking for the cow. Well, I'm telling you that it's a, it's abducted. You got to start looking up at night. <laughs> All right. Have a good day. Bye bye. Have a great day, John. Uh, John Jossie, uh, the line is available. And by the way, John has really, really great cattle for beef. So I can fully understand it being abducted. So um, they got a, uh, well, they yeah. got a hankering for steak. Let me tell you, swiping one of his cattle off the Montana ranch would be choice, choice prime beef. Um, Hi, you're on the space show. Who are you? Where are you, please? Just another member of the John Club. Fremont oh, for John. heaven's sakes. Like I said, we ought to, uh, moved to all moved to Nevada and had set up a country club out in the wilderness. <laughs> yeah, I just uh, I wanted to ask Juris if he uh, tipped that cow. What do you mean if he tipped it? You waited until it was asleep and then tipped it over? <laughs> tipped it over. Never mind. Uh... Mr. Brandenburg, yes. question. Regarding um, vision-fusion hybrid, any progress? Yes. Any progress? Well, it seems to be an idea whose time has come. Um, my uh, The people I work with keep noticing that more and more people are trying to file patents on... Um, Fusion fusion hybrids and other countries are talking about having fission fusion hybrid uh, projects. So um, it's an idea whose time has come. A part part of it is uh, John um, uh, that fusion has turned out to be so so difficult to do mm -hmm. that um, and you know compared to fission. Uh, which, you know, produces, um, you know, net energy without any problem at all, um, so that, um, oh, like, for example, in Madison, Wisconsin, there's a company, I believe it's called Phoenix, that where they have managed to make enormous, amounts of high-energy neutrons from fusion reactions, and basically they, they do it very simply. They just fire a beam of, um, um, you know, hydrogen isotope into a target of other hydrogen isotope and make the fusion that way. The target is, in fact, just a, a high-pressure high gas cylinder, and so they are making enormous amounts of fusion reactions without worrying about tokamaks and stuff like that. And, and um, they're making so many neutrons that, you know, you could easily um, run a nuclear a fission reactor off the number of, of neutrons they're making. So people, technology... 
uh, fusion technology is advancing so that the hybrid I, the hybrid fission fusion idea now looks more and more like an engineeringly uh, a feasible idea in terms of engineering. Great. Well, um, I, I hope they make progress. Um, just one more. Oh, question. oh yeah, I, I I believe that will be the ultimate uh, source of energy for the. It'll it'll save the um, it'll save the earth. Well, hopefully it's not thirty years away. No, no well, <laughs> talk to Peabody Coal Company. They'll tell you it's it's never going to happen, and and uh, so you know you you have to. Um, there are enormous economic interests uh, at work here. The fossil fuel industry is the most powerful, you know, well-moneyed industry on Earth, and um, it doesn't want to go out of business. Right. Uh, another question. They may change their business model and go to natural gas, which is actually better. Yeah, except it's, greenhouse gases. it's being outlawed in California cities, so... You know, natural gas. Yeah, you can't can't use it in Berkeley, California. There's another town in uh, down on the peninsula of San Francisco, and another one in Southern California, and uh, they're not allowing it in home remodels or any new construction. Well, how are they supposed to elect up electricity? And the electricity is supposed to have an increasingly larger component of green energy to generate that electricity rather than fossil fuels. And um, it's, um, you know, I'm sure John in Fremont knows what I'm talking about. It's it's in place right now in Berkeley and the one other Bay Area city that I can think of, but I can't remember the name of it. And uh, it's in place in, I think it's in Orange County or Southern California town as well. Uh, uh, so if you want to... Well, read, they're also uh, mandating uh, solar panel on every new new house. Right. Um, so, uh, but but the, the I'll, I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you a quick story from Madison, Wisconsin, where I used to live. Yeah, that's as bad as Berkeley. I well, I would yeah, it's called the Berkeley of the Midwest. Yeah, and uh, I drive into work where I would teach physics and astronomy and math mathematics at the Madison College, the local co- uh, two year college and. I had a great time teaching there, by the way. But you know, we we had kind of a physics faculty coffee machine and a little lounge where we'd all sit around talking before we teach class. And I'd drive in, and it would be absolutely arctic outside. Uh, gray skies, snow on the ground, and dead calm. And I drive in there, you know, and finally uh, make my way across the. Uh, they remodeled the whole place, but they still didn't give us covered parking, so it was just Arctic walking in from the uh, parking lot. And so I'd hang up my heavy overcoat and boots and stuff like this, walk in and get a cup of coffee before I was going to teach it. There was always there was one guy who was a really big proponent of green energy, and I, you know, and I I just couldn't resist saying his, his name was uh, Josh. I said, Josh, 
I just drove in, you know, from Middleton, which is another town, a suburb of Madison. There's no wind and there's no sun. (laughs) Why are the lights on here? (laughs) How how did he respond to you? Batteries, lithium batteries? Uh, he, he he mentioned once that he was going to calculate how to how to make giant battery farms around Madison to well, store up energy from uh, the summer and use it in the winter. <laughs> it, you know, so if you and the the reason, by the way, the lights were still on was because we had natural gas, nuclear, and even coal fired power plants all around Wisconsin keeping everybody warm during the winter. Well, California is the leading model for the rest of the country, according to Mayor Bloomberg. So maybe we'll all go this route. Um, listen, I'm, I'm not going to knock it because I have a lot of really, really smart listeners, much smarter than me and much more woke than me in science well, and engineering. And, you know, they support I'm, this. I'm in, fa- I'm in favor of, of anything we can do to hasten a get ourselves off of, of fossil fuels. For the record, I'm a big proponent of nuclear power to get us off of fossil fuels. Well, we're getting rid of that in California too. Well, I mean, I mean, John can tell. Seven percent nuclear power now for generating all their electricity. If they, if if, if France goes to electric cars, um then uh, they could be the first modern industrial country to have, have no basic, you know, greenhouse emissions. So that's, that's actually possible. That's, and that's realistic thinking by a bunch of people. Well, how are they going to generate the electricity for the electric cars? Nuclear. Nukes. They're, they got they're 87% going... nuclear as far as generating okay. electricity. Okay. So they, you know, they, they, in fact, they ship out power to Germany and... Um, yeah, I know the story of Germany getting rid of their nukes to buy it from nuclear power in France. And, and, and they're building coal-fired plants to replace their nuclear plants because everybody knows the wind and the solar doesn't generate enough power in Germany to, to supply, the, to make up the loss from the nuclear plants. Yet the other John in the, that Fort Worth cow patch has sent in a note that says when Sakharov was asked about fusion, he said the hybrid. Absolutely. That's what he said. That's a direct quote, huh? Yes, it is. Okay. so Just do the math. I mean, you get an enormous, you put an enormous amount of work into a fusion reaction, which is 18, generates 18 MeV worth of energy. And... Um, it releases a neutron, which you can then multiply by three or four. If you just have a lead uh, layer, layer of lead, it, it multiplies into four low-energy neutrons from one high-energy neutron. And those can all then trigger four fission reactions at 250 MeV each. So you've got 18 MeV of worth of energy from the fusion reaction and um, 1,000 MeV from the fission reactions. So just do the math. I mean, well, we fission is just a lot easier to do, and it produces a lot more energy. 
Well, I, I'm. I, by, by the way, but I'm not a pure fusion. I'm. I'm. I'm a. I'm not. I am a hybrid guy. I believe the fusion should be used to control the fission because of the problems. It can make up for the problems of fission, especially by transmuting nuclear waste. One more question before I sign off. Okay, go ahead. Sure. So uh, you mentioned a particle. Did you call it X-17? The X-17 particle, yes. It's a, and it's a particle that is actually predicted by my theory. The gem, so this is the gem a new, theory new. has uh, is a combination of the zero point um, uh, model of gravity, uh, quantum zero point, plus the Kluze-Klein model with a hidden dimension, um, and it basically uh, the Kluze-Klein gives you the mathematics of gravity and E and M that are coupled together, but you have to have this hidden dimension. And um, the uh, but then the, uh, the 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 zero point just says the gravity field itself is made up of of the microstructure of E and M fields. But what you can have then is a a um, the zero point field is there, but it's not. A completely structureless medium. It's got this hidden dimension stuck in the middle of it, and the hidden dimension can occasionally get activated by a quantum of electromagnetic energy and form a particle. Basically, you know, you, you trap some E and M energy in this hidden dimension, and you get a particle. And the particle so without um, um, to make a long story short is the 17 MeV um, X17 particle. It falls right out of the theory. Would that be detectable by the Large Hadron Collider? Uh, oh, the, the problem with the Large Hadron Collider is it's like using an elephant gun to try and shoot a gopher. <laughs> it, it, is, it is the energy scale of the Hadron Collider is, you know, hundreds of... GeV. That's hundreds of mass of uh, the mass energy of a proton, like the like the um, the Higgs boson was 128 GeV. That's the kind of energies it deals with. So would you but be the, able but to the, the, the X17 particle is only is only 17 MeV. The X17 particle is a remarkable. It's like looking at a map of the Pacific Ocean. That supposedly is well explored every place, and there's this big chunk of the Pacific Ocean where there shouldn't be any islands, and then somebody has found an island there. It's a particle that that sh- you know it seems like it should have been discovered a long time ago if it was actually there, but it's at low energy. It's not at the high energies of the hydron collider. It's a low energy particle. So how, how would you detect it, or how would you prove? Oh, oh, they, 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 uh, it, uh, it's easy to detect. Apparently, I mean, uh, it comes if you fire. Um, and here's the interesting thing: the experiment that produced this X17 particle, which stands for 17 MeV. There's 17 MeV particle accelerators all over the country, especially at U.S. government laboratories. 
I am certain they have checked to see if it's it's real or not. What's interesting, though, is you haven't heard any comment about it, and that's because it could have properties that are of um, technological relevance. What the what the X seventeen particle is, if it exists, is basically a heavy photon, and then it decays into an electron and an anti-electron. So it's um, uh, it's just a it's just a bundle of of kind of energy with no charge and no spin. And then it decays into an electron and an anti-electron, a particle and antiparticle pair, and that's how they detect it. Now I don't know. It, they, they think it may carry a fifth force, which is kind of outside of my theory. My theory just worries about the four forces that exist, that are known to exist. But the theory, the gem theory, predicts there would be this 17 MeV particle. So Actually, it's supposed to be 22 MeV, but then if not? you perturb it, it turns out it takes it down to exactly, you know, 16.7 MeV, which is what they see. So has it been detected or not? Oh, it's been, it, it's been detected uh, in two different... Um, Experiments. Unfortunately, the, the people who did it were in Eastern Europe, and but as far as I know, everyone has looked at their data and their apparatus and said, "Yep, you did it." What's really a little odd is the fact that uh, this ought to be a very easy experiment to reproduce. You know what I mean? Yeah, sounds like it's low end. There are places like Los Alamos or Lawrence Livermore Lab where I used to work. I know they have accelerators that produce like 20 MeV beams of particles. And what's interesting is they are very quiet. The, quiet, the silence is deafening. So, so help me understand what the technological implications of this would be that you mentioned. What, what? Well, what uh, you know, for for one thing, if you have a particle that carries uh, that decays into an uh, an electron and an anti-electron, um, that means you're basically carrying matter and antimatter in a compact form. Okay. You have a way of stabilizing it, or um, um, let's just say you can supply energy into certain situations that you might find interesting if you're in a national security environment, and uh, use this particle to do it. But, uh, you know, I, I don't, all I'm saying is that. It should be a very easy experiment to reproduce, which means, you know, they could, if it, they could refute it, it should be easy to refute. If they can confirm it, it should be easy to confirm. But they're silent. So there's, 
something to do with national security, you think? Or? Well, it uh, could be. Okay. Or possibly, let's say, let's just say that people are um, erring on the side of caution. There could be national security implications to the particle, particularly if it carries a fifth force. And um, until they know what those are, they're not saying anything. Uh, you know, the Russians and the Chinese, particularly the Russians, could have reproduced this experiment very easily. But they're silent. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, um, good It's question. like the, Thank you the, the, very the much. Uh, old uh, Sherlock Holmes thing. Why didn't the dog bark? So, John, find me a guest on X-17, okay? All right, I will. No, John Jossie, he sends me guest list. He's the greatest guest researcher in the history of the oh, world. Oh, a different John. Huh? Yeah, well, either John. Find, find me an ex I'm just another guest. John. Yeah, that's right. Just a, another John whose name shall be published in the newspaper. That's uh, right. Uh, find me a, an X-17 guest, John and John, and, and we'll put them on the show. Okay, I'm on it. John also? What? How about if his name is John also? Well, look, I don't care. I don't care if his name is Dimitri. It doesn't matter. So. It'll be either John or Jane. How about that? That, 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 that? That's right. Now, I may need a co-host to help me ask questions because I don't know what in the hell your guys are talking about. But Well, I know somebody um, at DOE, and she can come on as Jane Doe. <laughs> All right, uh, right, right I'm yeah, I'm I'm gonna have. Okay, to deal anyway, with it. don't uh, if you see an X17 particle under your bed, don't be alarmed. What does it look like? <laughs> uh, it looks like a little puff of light, and then it's gone. Okay, well, I see a lot of those. <laughs> I think the the doctor calls them flashes and something else. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fremont, thank you for your call. Thank you, John. Bye bye. Um, Dr. B, is there any possible way you could summarize today's discussion? <laughs> I have no clue how to do that. Uh, well, I, I will just simply say that the um, I, I have a paper into the next the APS meeting, which is supposed to be in April. They just canceled the March meeting, by the way. Because of the virus? Denver, because of the virus. Yeah. I, they I, may cancel the uh, April meeting also. It's supposed to be in Washington, D.C. Uh-huh. Uh, but basically... Um, the, uh, you know, I have found out, I found out this summer that I was the only person with a formula, a model-derived formula for Big G. It was accurate. And so I'm, uh, you know, I'm continuing to kind of advertise that. I have bragging rights. Okay. And uh, then also the X-17 particle which is now considered real. Uh, they, they, you know, it was published like two years ago, and then they recently found more evidence of it in November okay. of last year, you know, just a few months ago. So uh, it, it, I'm going to advertise the fact in my paper that it falls right out of my theory. Okay. It, it's a particle associated with the fifth dimension, the Kaluza-Klein fifth dimension in the theory. That unify the Kaluza-Klein fifth dimension unifies gravity and NM mathematically, and it so then but then because of quantum mechanics you can actually get a particle that is the fifth dimension kind of lit up, 
and sparkling, and uh, that it turns out when it falls out of when it falls out of the theory in my theory, it's 17 MeV, just the same as they well, found. Well, when you deliver your paper, can we put it up on the on the show blog? Absolutely. Okay. In fact, I'll send you the link to the abstract just in case they cancel the meeting. Can I put uh, the can I put that up on the on the blog for this show or do you need to wait? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I'll I'll send you a link. Okay. It I mean, it's already published as part of the scientific program for the April meeting. Okay. Which in, I am registered for in which they gave me a podium this time. So right. I, I'll get the pound on my pound on the podium. Any uh Anything we should have talked about or forgotten or omitted or that you no, want to I add think, to No, I think, no, we've uh, we've covered most of the really recent stuff, and the questions on the isotope abundances are were very good. And uh, I can just speak to the krypton on Mars, that if there's more krypton than one would expect, and that's consistent with the big nuclear explosion. Um, I got an 11th hour question for you. 11th hour, all right. Um, Judy is in Albuquerque. Ah, and, and not somebody named John, finally. No, it's Judy. She said, I don't know anything about physics. I'm not a physics person, but uh, can you tell me what came first, Superman from the planet Krypton or the element Krypton? <laughs> I'm, oh. I'm, this is oh, it was, uh, it was definitely... Uh, uh, Do you know? I don't know. You know, I don't even. I'm certain Krypton was discovered before uh, the planet Krypton of the Superman. Well, so if anyone out there knows the origin of Krypton for the Superman stories versus Krypton the element, post it on the blog so that Judy will have her answer because I don't know the answer to that either. I don't. I think we should just look up on. Wikipedia. Here, I'll look up on Wikipedia right now. And see the origin of Krypton the element? Yes. Of course, Rip- And the origin of Superman. Of course, Krypton is not, I mean, Wikipedia is not always that reliable. Oh, I know. But it, for quick and dirty, it works. All right, let's see. When was Krypton Let's the answer element? this great burning question of the hour. <laughs> Let's find out when Krypton was uh, coined as an element. What the? Here, he keeps telling me my password. <laughs> my password is wrong. <laughs> you need a password for, for Wikipedia? No. That might, you know. Okay, let's see. Krypton. Number 36. Krypton, as opposed to technium, which is number 34. Okay, Krypton. There's kryptonite or a krypton element. Okay, it was discovered in 1898 by... That is a long time before Superman. By Sir William Ramsey and Morris. Uh, so now, how? I wonder if the if Superman, which is DC Comics, got it from the periodic table, or it's just uh, oh, I a think they got it. But a Krypton means mystery. So, but so you could say mis- mysterious uh, particle. Okay, but planet. but the planet blew up, remember, and that's why Superman got to Earth as Super Baby. Um, so I wonder. Well, which links to my. Uh 
hypothesis about Mars. <laughs> so, That's listeners, a very, a very, a very good point that she has raised. So, listeners, we we know that Krypton, the element, comes long before Superman with the planet Krypton. So, if anyone out there knows why the planet in Superman was named Krypton, if it has to do with the element. <laughs> Posted on. They just the blog. thought it was cool. Posted on the blog, and Judy, you get. Here's here's the really important question: Was the nightclub Xenon named Xenon before the gas Xenon was discovered? Probably, because the gas is what makes. Uh, well, it, 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 they use it for lighting in the, in, in the, the nightclub. When was Xenon discovered? I don't know. You can probably find that out real quick too. Right, xenon, xenon lights. Well, or the yeah, xenon. All right, and it was discovered. It says when was it discovered? It doesn't say. Um, I don't know, but. Listeners, if you know the answers to these Okay, pages. it was discovered by Ramsey. Ramsey was obviously on a roll. Yeah. And uh, in 1902. Around the same time as Krypton. Yeah, well, no, 1898. Well, 1898 oh. for Krypton, so four years later. Yeah, about four years later. So, so now... Uh, anyway, then he founded the nightclub Xenon in New York City. So, uh, So whoever finds... Out. So, Julie, Judy, Judy wins the award for the the Judy question. Judy wins of the, the award day. for most interesting question <laughs> of the show. Uh, and that's a two and a half hour show. You have the longest show in probably <laughs> more more than, more than a year. Well, no wonder I'm a little tired. Uh, I better. Well, very good, John. Thank uh, you very much for sticking it out, Doctor <coughs> Space. For, for always a that. pleasure and an honor to be on your show. You have such great uh, great listeners. Who asked such intelligent questions? And um, very good. Hopefully, I'll be uh, giving another report soon. Um, there are rumors. There are rumors that the calculation of the uh, gravitation constant g, uh-huh. my theory, using a new perturbation technique, now is within experimental error. So I actually have a theoretical estimate that is as close to the measured value as it's within experimental error. So I have a prediction. How about that? Pretty that's good. Only ru- that's only a rumor, though. And you don't even need a magic eight ball. <laughs> no, I do need a magic. Uh, you're a miracle occurs. <laughs> John, until the next time, I'll send you the information when it's archived. Okay, now drink Corona beer. Well, it, I don't. Actually, uh, it actually prevents coronavirus infections. Uh, and for those of us that don't drink beer, do you have a suggestion other than washing our hands? Uh, go move to Corona in uh, New Mexico. All right. There are no corona. There are no confirmed corona cases in Corona. Uh, for now, we will. <laughs> say, corona, California, too. We will say goodbye to Doctor Brandenburg, and we thank everybody okay, for, for calling. Okay, in, in uh, 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 Mrs. and Mr. America, and all the ships at sea. Have uh, a great day. Thank you, and uh, listeners. Uh, Tuesday, Sarah Scholes is with us. She has an interesting new book 
on their out there. Look her up on Amazon, S-C-O-L-E-S. Who are they? And, well, you have to pay attention to Sarah's right. book or show. I'm, I, I'm not going to tell you. But she's also written some pretty thought-provoking uh, journalistic space articles. She's been on the space show before. Uh, she's coming on about her journalism as well as her new book. John Hunt will love her new book. That should give you a hint. And then uh, Open Lines is on Sunday, and uh, hopefully we'll have a Hotel Mars this week and our Friday program. Everything's on the website newsletter and upcoming show menu right now. Check it out. Remember this week, we're remembering Freeman Dyson. If you can, listen to his 2006 interview program. Uh, yes, and please show. give my very best regards to his daughter. Um, I, I never met, but just say that I, I did very much enjoy and found encouragement as a physicist from her father. Well, I think millions of people around the world would say the same thing. He's a unique person, for sure. Very good. John, thank you again. Okay, listeners. thanks a lot, Everybody, Dave. Thank Take you. care now. Good night from the Space Show. Everybody keep looking up, too.